Lord, as we open up your word this morning and look at this passage here in Joshua 1, I pray, God, that that it wouldn't just pass through one ear and out the other, but it would stick. It would remain with us. You put your anointing on me as I preach the words that I bring that are only my words, nothing, nothing to offer these people here this morning. The words from you, your word itself, that is what brings the power in our lives. May it speak to our hearts this morning. May we simply say, speak, your servant is listening. In Jesus' name, amen. It was just before 5 o'clock on the afternoon of April 12, 1945, that the news broke around the world that the man who had been President of the United States for the past 12 years was dead. Hitler was telephoned because this piece of good news could be the turning point in the war. Many feared such a prediction would be correct. When Franklin D. Roosevelt died, the question on most people's minds was, what would be next? Suddenly, Harry Truman was president. Truman had been vice president for only 82 days before FDR's sudden death. Hardly anyone had any idea who he was. All most people knew about Truman was that he was a largely uneducated farmer from an independence Missouri. He was untried, unknown, untested on the world stage, and yet now he was in charge of a full-scale war in the Pacific and in Europe. When Truman became president, he had no experience in foreign relations, did not know Churchill or Stalin, had never been told a whisper about the development of the nuclear bomb. And above all, he was not Franklin Roosevelt. Upon hearing that Roosevelt was dead, a stunned Harry Truman said to Eleanor Roosevelt, his wife, is there anything I can do for you? Mrs. Roosevelt replied, is there anything we can do for you? For you are the one in trouble now. (laughs) From merely a human perspective, those could have been the words uttered to the man Joshua. Moses is dead, and you are the one in trouble now. Looking at the book of Joshua, as noted last week, the the nation of Israel, the people of God, are in a time of transition. God miraculously brought them out of slavery in Egypt, under the leadership of a great man of God, Moses, who was said to be like no other prophet and who performed awesome deeds like no one else. An entire generation, due to unbelief, with the exception of Caleb and Joshua, passed away, and a new generation stood at the brink of entering the land promised to them by the covenant-keeping God. But their great leader was dead. And likely on the minds of people was that same tense question, what would be next? 
and the one thrust into moving them from where they are to where they needed to be and entering God's best was this man Joshua. Do you suppose he might have felt just a little over his head? At the death of Moses, everything is now on Joshua. Joshua's task was quite daunting. He was to organize a military campaign. He was to to conquer the the promised land. He was to divide it among the people and, and then to establish the people on a moral and spiritual foundation in their new homeland. Now, perhaps coming up with strategies for military success, Joshua might have felt qualified. Perhaps even dividing the land, Joshua might have felt was attainable, for it's a matter of trigonometry. But establish the people on spiritual principles, teach the people to to remain faithful and keep the people from wanting to throw stones at their new leader, well, that was going to be the most difficult task of them all. We're in Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Turn in your Bibles if you're not there. Joshua chapter 1. And our first pass through these nine verses, which is really what we're going to look at again this morning. Our first pass through these nine verses of chapter 1, zeroed in on the promises of God. God will do what he says he will do. And when a man or woman of God dies, nothing of God dies. And Joshua needed to be reassured of this. God commanded Joshua to not to be terrified and reminds him three times that he is with him. And that to me suggests that Joshua did in fact struggle with fear or the potential certainly existed. Our bottom line from last week, our bottom line from last week was when God's presence is all you have, it is all that you need. When God's presence is all that you have, it is all that you need. And Joshua had all the assurance that he needed. God would carry Joshua when each step was made. God had Joshua. That's where we left off last week. And last time I kind of sort of left you on a ledge. (laughs) I left you on the imaginary rock, making your way to the top. The picture, if you recall from last week, was of rock climbing and that moment in time in which handholds seem scarce and footholds appear non-existent. And rock climbing, the technical term, is called a commitment move. It is the crux move of the entire climb. You have this rope around you that will keep you from ever falling for more than a few inches. And yet your first inclination when you're right at that moment of that commitment move is to freeze. I'll just hold on and stay right here. Our commitment move. On a commitment move, you've got to either go for it or get off the climb. Remaining where you are is not an option. Believer, you are roped with the assurance of God's presence. He promises to be with you wherever you go. You're on the ledge. The waiting is painful. 
You can wait if you want, I suppose, for the next handhold to be easy. But you can't stay on the ledge forever. Remaining where you are is not an option. What are you going to do? What's your commitment move? What would be next? And it's right here. It's right here that many people assume their good intentions make up for inactivity. Or even worse, that their good intentions make up for their apathy. Knowledge of what to do is not the same as actually doing it. As James Boswell so aptly put years ago, hell is paved with good intentions. Or as the writer of Scripture under the superintending of God himself wrote in James chapter 4, verse 17, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Assuming that your intentions are to enter God's best for you, what turns those intentions into action? I mean, if God's best for you is over here, and you're here, how do you get to where you're going? What is the bridge that moves you from one side of the intention side to cross over into actions? Well, our passage this morning answers that. Follow along as I read from Joshua chapter 1. I think you'll find that the answer is obvious. Chapter 1, verse 6. God commands Joshua, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Verse 7, God says, be strong and very courageous. And then if you go down to verse 9, he says it again, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Three times in four verses, God commands Joshua to be strong and courageous. And that's our subject for this morning. Now, the thought behind the command, be strong, is strength of resolve. When he says be strong, it, means to, it is a strength of resolve. It is easy to lose our resolve in the face of adversity. Starting a race is easy. It's finishing that requires resolve. Good intentions ask little of us. It takes resolve to stick with them to completion. Where are you in need of some resolve right now? And what area of your life will it take stick to to see this resolve lived out rather than fizzle out? Be strong. And God adds, be courageous. Be courageous. And for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to flesh out this idea of, of courage. It's a very important word to our journey. How do we get to where we're going? How do we move from intentions to action? One word. Courage. Courage. What's courage? The biblical scholar John Wayne said, <laughs> not really, but he did say this. Courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. 
Or someone else put it, the trick is not to rid your stomach of butterflies, but to make them fly in formation. (laughs) Now, courage is more than some nice little sayings. Courage is more than something you feel after listening to some motivational speaker. Courage is so often misunderstood, and, and I believe it is one of the most underrated virtues of our time. What's biblical courage? Well, these verses provide us with a threefold description of courage. There are three things that I want to say about courage from this passage. First of all, courage is related to our mission. Courage is related to our mission. Secondly, courage rests upon the assurance of God's presence. And thirdly, courage is anchored in the word of God. First of all, courage is related to our mission. To our mission. Joshua was given a clear assignment from God. If you go back in verse 2, God said to Joshua, Moses, my servant is dead. Now then you, Joshua, and all these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. Moses is dead. Now, folks, God isn't pacing the halls in heaven going, oh, no, Moses is dead. What am I going to do? He says, next. (laughs) That's it. And Joshua is one link in a very long chain. But if God wants you to be one of those links, you better be one of those links. God has a job for Joshua to do. God has a job for you to do. He does. Remember, save from, save to. Now, I don't know why. I don't know why it's often perceived that Christianity is for weaklings. It takes courage to own up to your sins before a holy God. It is downright painful to own up to the truth of your sinful condition. But it is right there that we can find Jesus who met our greatest need for salvation. And if that is what you've accepted, received, and brought into your life, there's another part of your story, the left out verse, Ephesians 2.10. God has prepared in advance some works for you to do. What has God prepared in advance for you to do, for me to do? It's different than what you have to do, but there are works prepared in advance for me to do. Listen, don't wimp out on God. Make no mistake about it. Now, as we talk about courage, biblical courage is not, it is not this pull yourselves up by your own bootstraps kind of courage. That's not what we're talking about. It's not about finding the courage within, whatever that means. It has to do with submission to Jesus Christ and his plans for your life. Now, is that terrifying at times? You know it. I mean, how much courage is needed where there's no fear? Like the man, like the man who, who boasted that he cut off the tail of a man-eating lion with his pocket knife. He was asked why he hadn't cut off the lion's head, and the man replied, someone had already done that. <laughs> That's easy. See, it's easy sometimes to pretend to be brave. Anyone can have courage where there's nothing to risk. 
God commands Joshua in the face of his fears not to be terrified, but instead be a man of courage. Joshua needed real bravery and courage. Why? He was given an assignment from God. Robert Hubbard writes, The danger is that fears, feelings of inadequacy and doubts may cripple Joshua's resolve, muddle his mind, and shake his confidence. The resulting confusion, wavering, and tentativeness would sow despair, if not dissent, among the followers and endanger the mission. The temptation, then, is to back off from risks, to strike compromises, or to retreat altogether. What is God asking of you right now? What is that first step of courage? Is it repentance? Maybe it's repentance. Maybe it's sitting down with your family and acknowledging some inconsistencies in your life. Maybe it's making a phone call to to make things right with someone. Or ending a relationship because you know it's not of God. Or maybe it's stopping to talk to that person you just pass by consistently. You see, it takes courage to do those things. It takes courage to stick with your marriage rather than leave. It takes courage to move toward your spouse in loving involvement. It takes courage to go against the flow. It takes courage to discipline your kids. It takes courage to say, I've blown it. It takes courage to face another day without your mate of so many years. It takes courage to do what is right when no one else is looking. It takes courage to master your passions rather than succumb to them. It takes courage to not compromise and to fight off the greener grass syndrome. It takes courage to risk connecting with others, to live beyond mediocrity. It takes courage to put sermons into practice. Where do you need, where do I need courage to move us from intentions to actions right now? Where's God taking you? Where's he taking you? I can safely say it will require courage in some way to get you to where you need to be. Guarantee it. Courage is related to our mission. Secondly, courage rests upon the assurance of God's presence. Courage rests upon the assurance of God's presence. Now, we spent a lot of time last week on this very truth, this promise here of God's presence. So I'm just going to touch on it briefly. But God promises that he will be with Joshua just as he was with Moses in verse 5. As I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. God promises he'll never leave him. And our response to God's presence is that we have no reason to fear what lies ahead, but every reason to be resolute and unwavering. Biblical courage is moving forward, doing the right thing in the face of fear, trusting that God is going to show up. Did you hear that? Let me say that again. Biblical courage is moving forward, doing the right thing in the face of fear, trusting that God will show up. All too often, we play it so safe, don't we? So we can get done what needs to be done without God showing up at all, right? 
I mean, be honest. When is the last time you did something that if God weren't in it, you'd fall flat on your face? Philip Brooks put it this way. He said, do not pray for easy lives. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. The kind of courage God is speaking about here is a success that's completely dependent upon God showing up. Joshua would need to throw himself, abandon himself to God, doing what God asked him to do, and then trust that God was going to show up and see him through it. Now, there's something in these verses that we must see as it relates to walking in the assurance of God's presence. I want to compare verse 9 with verse 7. Verse 9, he says, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be terrified, do not be discouraged. Why? For the Lord your God will be with you, catch this, wherever you go. Biblical assurance rests, courage rests on this assurance. The Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Now notice verse 7. Compare it with verse 7. He says, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn from it to the right. Do not turn to it to the left. That you may be successful. Get this wherever you go. God promises success wherever he goes. But do you see what this is saying? Joshua's success is tied to God's presence. And yet when Joshua is obedient to God's word, he will have success wherever he goes. Do you think there's a connection between God's presence and God's words? It is God's presence that is Joshua's power. And that power comes through a single-minded commitment to God's words. You show me a person. You show me a person who's struggling to sense God's presence in his life, and I'll show you a person who's neglecting time in God's word. Case closed. God makes his presence known through his word. That's our third point. It's a biggie. Courage is anchored in the word of God. It is anchored in the word of God. Do you want success in your life? Is there a particular area where you really need it right now? Or does it feel hopeless to you in that area? I can't get success here. And you feel hopeless. You just keep losing the battle. Kind of like poor Charlie Brown. He's sitting on the bench, totally dejected as his team is losing yet another game. And he says to Lucy, it's no use. Our team has no hope of ever winning a game. And Lucy replies, well, Charlie Brown... You win some, and you lose some. And Charlie's eyes brighten up, and he says, oh, that would be great. (laughs) It takes some winning. He loses all the time. Are you winning some battles in your life? Are you going, oh, I just always lose. Are you experiencing some success? Really, this is one of the only places in Scripture where success is definitively described. Follow along with me as I read it again, verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Then you may be successful wherever you go. Verse 8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then, then you'll be prosperous 
and successful. Now, by the way, by the way, the word for success here speaks to being prudent and walking in wisdom. Please, do not put a material interpretation on this, as many have done. Yeah, God is promising God's people here land, yes. But the focus for Joshua as a leader was his ability to lead in wisdom and with God's heart, which could only come as he walked in the courage of doing things God's way. What's the path to success? What is it? God's words. Three things. Proclaim it, possess it, practice it. Proclaim it, possess it, practice it. Those are the three things. First of all, God's word must be proclaimed. He's told here not to let this book depart from his mouth. He was to talk about it. His leadership would fail if the book ever became second place. And you know what? The temptation is great today in the evangelical church in America to try and build success on everything but the word of God. It's happening. The tendency is to kind of splash around in a little truth for a bit, but then get restless in that and go look for some novelty or shortcut or something less demanding, and we get away from the anchor of our soul, the very words of God. The evangelical church is in trouble because of that. Biblical illiteracy is appalling. Pragmatism has replaced the supernatural, and overall there's a loss of confidence in this. There's a loss of confidence that this is truly sufficient and the final word in all matters. And as a pastor of 25 years, I have been committed to feeding God's word, seeking to bring it to the bottom shelf where it can be applied to your life. And the more years behind the pulpit has not weakened my commitment to this, but only strengthened it. This is why, loved ones, I must, I must protect my time in his word. I must. You deserve to hear the word of God every single week and not my thoughts. They're not worth much. Really. God's word must be proclaimed. That I can do and I must do. But you know what I can't do? There's something I cannot do for you and should not do for you, and that is chew your food. (laughs) That's really a gross image, sorry. Just be thankful I edited this from how I first had it written, honestly. The charge to Joshua is the charge to all of us. Chew on God's food, which is the word of God. See, God's word must be proclaimed, but God's word must be possessed. Not only must the word not depart from his mouth, but he's to meditate on it day and night. And the art of meditation is lost today. We've equated it to New Age philosophy and the practice of clearing our minds. And that is dangerous kind of meditation. But to meditate on God's word is to allow the truth of God to shape our thinking and transform how we live. The word meditate has the thought of a dull sound. Someone described it as being the background music of your life. 
I like that. Often, as we're traveling about and we go into different buildings, it might be in a, in a waiting room at a doctor's office. It, it might be a store at the mall, if you must go there. <laughs> it might be a supermarket that you walk into and some music is playing in the background. Years ago, I worked in a supermarket and learned that much thought goes into the music that's being played in the backgrounds. Because studies have been done as to the best music for prompting shoppers to buy more. Our spiritual success rests on the music that's being played in the background of our minds as we encounter challenges, face decisions, and go about daily tasks. It is then we are meditating on God's word, chewing it over in our minds that when a situation rises or a trial hits or a decision must be made that we're then able to turn up the volume. If it isn't there to begin with, we have nothing to turn up. Can you live without this? No. Are you living without this? I'm not above this, by the way. I can also neglect time in God's Word. I'm not just preaching to you this morning. If we are to ever get to where we're going, and more importantly, where God wants us to go, we must immerse ourselves in this. Possess it, making it our own. But pastor, you don't know how busy I am. You know how busy I am. Joshua had a military of of 40,000 men or more to oversee. He had officials to communicate with. He had plans to draw up. He had people to lead. Yeah, he was busy. He had lands to conquer. He had enemies to fight. But in all that busyness and all that he was called to do, nothing would be more important than his time in the words. And if anyone might have had an excuse, it would have been Joshua. Or this man I read about, and I'm sure I've shared this with you before, a man I read about from Kansas City was severely injured in an explosion. His face was badly disfigured, and he lost his eyesight as well as both of his hands gone. He just became a new Christian, and one of his greatest disappointments was that he could no longer read the Bible. This was the, the, before the day you could listen to it on tape. He then heard about a lady in England who read Braille with her lips. Hoping to do the same, he sent for some books of the Bible in Braille. Much to his dismay, however, he discovered the nerve endings on his lips had been destroyed by the explosion. And again, he faced disappointment. I can't read God's words. I can't live without this. One day, as he brought one of the Braille pages to his lips, his tongue happened to touch a few of the raised characters, and he could feel them on his tongue. Like a flash, he thought, I can read the Bible using my tongue. So using his tongue, he read through the entire Bible, not just once, not twice, not three times, but four times he read through the entire Bible using his tongue. That's a man, I might say, had an excuse. 
Yeah, meditation is for the busy person. It's for everyone. Thirdly, I got to get to this. God's word must be practiced, not only proclaimed, not only possessed, it must be practiced. Joshua is not to let this book of the law depart from his mouth. He's to meditate on it day and night. But the passage goes on to say that proclaiming and possessing isn't enough. Notice the words there in the middle of verse 8. Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Two words, big words, important words. So that. So that. What's the purpose of meditating on God's word? What's the purpose of not letting it depart from my mouth? That you may be careful to do. Underline. To do. Everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. We can't just look at God's word and go, oh, that's nice. Wow. Neat. We kind of treat it like window shopping sometimes, God's word. We do. You go around to the stores and you look at all the stuff, but you have no means or intention of actually buying anything. A man said to his wife, why do you call it shopping? You never buy anything. She replied, why do you call it fishing? You never catch anything. (laughs) Good comeback. Guys, we know it's not the same thing. You get the point. Let these words to Joshua sink in. We're cautioned to obey all of it. No deviation to the right. No deviation to the left would be acceptable. The human tendency is to follow God's words selectively. I like this. I don't like that. We, remember, we put into practice what's convenient and forget and neglect the difficult parts. However, if anyone wants true success in their lives and in all areas of their lives, it only comes by doing things God's way and by putting all of it into practice. You see, the measure of success is not how much material possessions you own. The measure of, of success is, is, not, is not measured by how many digits show up on your paycheck. It's not measured by our accomplishments in the workplace. It's not, it's not how well we perform. That's not the measure of success. It's not even the number of verses we can recite from memory, believe it or not. It's not our popularity. The measure of success is not in what others might even say about us. The measure of success is in our obedience to what God says. And as it's been said, one act of obedience is better than 100 sermons. Warren Worsby aptly put it, I wonder if some of our Bible study activities are not like what goes on in a fast food restaurant. We go to the study, we listen to the teacher, we quickly get it all down in correct outlines, and then we rush off to something else. We don't take time to think, ponder, question, reflect, relate, or apply. And then he says, the sad result is a great gap between learning and living. The sad result is a great gap between learning and living. Brothers and sisters in Christ, are there gaps? Where are the gaps? What trade-offs have you been making? How is your soul? Are you successful? You can't build your success on what you're going to do. But rather it's built on what you actually do. Back in the 1800s, 
the Spokane, Washington newspaper printed an editorial pleading for the establishment of a fire department. Seattle had recently been ravaged by fire, and the paper desired to prevent the same calamity from happening in Spokane. And they pleaded, we need a fire station, we need a fire department. Nothing, however, was done. They talked about it, they thought about it, they even got together to meet about it, but nothing was ever done. And two months later, Spokane burned to the grounds. Burned to the grounds. If we are to get from where we are to where God wants us to be, intentions, no matter how good they may be, won't get us there. They won't. We can talk all we want about what needs to be done, but we will have, but will we have the courage to actually do it? Are there gaps? Are there gaps between learning and living? Will you have the courage to do what needs to be done to close the gaps? What courageous first step needs to be taken? Lincoln said, during the Civil War, He said that he could get any number of men who were willing to shed their last drop of blood. The problem, said Lincoln, was that he found it was difficult to get anyone to shed that first drop. Is that where you're at? Oh, I'll lay it all down for the Lord if I have to. I won't give him a first drop. Close the gap. Loved ones, close the gap. Is that in your life right now? I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask. I don't always do this, but I'm going to do it this morning. I feel led to do this. There's some gaps in your life. There's some gaps between learning and living. I'll say, yeah, a bunch of them. There's one that just pops right in your mind right now. Whoa, that's a gap. People think I'm here. I'm really only here. I've learned a lot. I haven't lived this out. Where are the gaps? Is there a gap? There is. Stand. Just stand. Just say, yeah, there are gaps in my life between learning and living. I'm standing because I want you to pray for me. Will you do that? I'm going to ask you, if I was sitting, I would stand right now, by the way. I would. No, me. I'm saying me, not you. Because there are gaps. Let me pray. Let me pray. Lord God, you know what those are in our lives. Others in the room do not. I know what it is in my life. Maybe it's been impressed upon us this morning in a very real way, in a very personal way, in a very specific way. I've been saying this, but I haven't been living this. I've done a lot of learning in this one area. I could quote it, give it to you, but I'm not living it out in my practice right here. And there's a gap. God, one's here this morning, standing, sitting, whatever. Desires close the gap. They're standing with you in courage. They're taking the first step, even by standing, and saying, I want to follow Jesus every step of the way, everywhere he takes me. God, may that be our desire. May that be our commitment. And may we not wimp out on God as we leave here this morning. But may we have the courage to continue and living out what it is you've laid in our heart at this very moment. Because when we trust and obey, that's the best way.
It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Everyone stand. Hymn number 349. 349. Trust and obey. Verse 1, 4, and 5. 1, 4, and 5.